Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today's part two of a two-part series with Eric Miller, and today he's covering Thomas and Alexander Campbell's beliefs about the Trinity, as well as going into more depth on Barton Stone and Elias Smith and some of the other founders of the Stone-Campbell movement in the 1800s. He also talks about his own experience in the 21st century as a non-Trinitarian himself in the independent Christian church's community. He explains how the Christian churches have become stricter on this issue in recent years compared to how the movement was in the days of the founders. And we discuss the possibility, how in the world can one reform the church to be more in line with the tolerance expressed by Campbell and Stone in the early years. And so here now is episode 440, Non-Trinitarian History in the Stone-Campbell Movement with Eric Miller. Welcome, Eric Miller, to Restitutio. So glad to have you today with me. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's talk about the Trinity and look at some major figures in the Restoration Movement. Uh, Where would you like to get started there? Probably the best place to start would be Alexander and Thomas Campbell. Okay. So um, Alexander and Thomas Campbell immigrated to this country from Ireland. They were both Presbyterian ministers and both left the Presbyterian church at about the same time. They form the Trinitarian half of the restoration movement. Thomas Campbell in particular, starting with him, basically held traditional views throughout the entirety of his life in that not only was he comfortable with the theological content of the Trinity, he would even use the word Trinity on occasion, which was something that was very rare within the movement. They, even the people who thought that the Trinity doctrine was biblical would not use the word Trinity. So, you know, he was a good <laughs> Irishman. Uh, you know, he was willing to change his views on things, but he kind of held firm on that theological content through the, the entirety of his life. What changed, however, was with Alexander Campbell who, similar to his father, didn't have a problem with the theological content of the doctrine of the Trinity, but had a big problem with the the language. And I want to give you a quote from one of his early journals, The Christian Baptism, The Christian Baptist, that kind of exemplifies this. This This is Campbell talking. He says, I have been asked a thousand times, what do you think of the doctrine of the Trinity? What do you think of the Trinity? Uh, And he goes on to say, I have not spent perhaps an hour in 10 years in thinking about the Trinity. It is no term of mine. It is a word which belongs not to the Bible in any translation as I ever saw. I teach nothing. I say nothing. I think nothing about it, save that it is an unscriptural term and consequently can have no scriptural ideas attached to it. Take a quote like that, and there are many of them. (laughs) In his early journals, in his later journals, you can see why many people would consider him to be a non-Trinitarian. Was this from Alexander Campbell? That was from Alexander Campbell. Yeah, that was in the Christian Baptist, his early. That's just incredible. 
It is. No, and he, he made all kinds of statements like that, denouncing Trinitarianism and the use of the doctrine of the Trinity for that very reason. It's not a word which belongs to the Bible in any translation that he ever saw, he said. And yet, and we have to be careful here, because too much can be made of that. And I think that too much was made of it by both his detractors and some of his would-be Unitarian supporters even today. Because he mm-hmm. goes on to say, but I discover that the Trinitarians, Unitarians, and Simple Arians are always in the field upon this subject. And that the more they contend, the less they know about it. So he lumps Trinitarians, Unitarians, and Arians all in the same group with that kind of IAN moniker, which is that these are people who were constantly talking about these issues. They were dividing over them. They were debating about them. And they were you know, making them a point of contention among the believers. He didn't have any patience for that, regardless if it was on the Trinitarian or the Unitarian or the Arian side of things. So while he didn't object so much to the theological content of the doctrine of the Trinity, he did object to the way in which both the Baptists and the Presbyterians and others were excluding others based on fellowship on this doctrine. And if I could just put in one more quote of his that kind of helps you see how he would express his belief in the doctrine of the Trinity using language that he thought was appropriate. This is in, again, one of his journals that he wrote. He said, one Jehovah and three personalities and one mediator in three offices constitute the true faith and the true religion of the Christian church and the reign of heaven. So one Jehovah and three personalities, one mediator and three offices. This was a kind of language that he would consistently use throughout his life to describe the doctrine of the Trinity, three personalities in, in one Jehovah. Um, so he was a Trinitarian, despite what some people think, but he was not an expositor of Trinitarian dogma and speculation. And the place of the Trinity and the Christian life was relegated to the periphery. It was not at the, cent- the center. And would you say that this is characteristic of the Christian churches today? This mindset? Do they prefer that everyone hold the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, uh, now that's okay. That's an interesting question because I think that when I look at the exchanges between Campbell and Stone, that he would have also preferred <laughs> that Stone held to that doctrine that I described of the one Jehovah and three personalities, but was not willing to force that upon him. Where we are, I think, today in the Christian churches is that. We don't talk a lot in terms of the Trinity unless we're doing a Bible study on cults or something like that. Yet we have this idea of one God eternally existed in three persons. And I can use myself as an example. You know, I'm a non-Trinitarian in the independent Christian churches. And I have not really had anyone explicitly question my salvation or call me a heretic or try to kick me out of the church but I do know that it would limit and has limited the ability to serve in formal ministry uh, offices. We are a movement that does not stress the Trinity, but if somebody comes in and says, I'm a non-Trinitarian and wants to start making that maybe their you know, identifier, uh, that would cause some issue. So do you think you'll be able to minister within the 
within the denomination or within a church? I guess you guys probably don't like the word denomination. <laughs> Do you see me trying to avoid that? <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's honestly just out of... I, I'm uh, not saying it to be, to be obtuse. No, I, you know, I'm just... Uh, I, I want to use the terminology that you want to use. So tell me what to call it. No, you can certainly call the Your denomination. Group. How about that? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I usually call it our, 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 our church community, but it, it, you can okay. use it in the word yeah. So within your church community, yeah. is it difficult or impossible even for you to become a pastor? It would be very difficult. It would be very difficult. Um, I wouldn't say impossible just because of the great amount of unity that we have within our churches. I have heard of this happening before where a non-Trinitarian has been a preacher of uh, an independent Christian church. But basically the movement in modern days has become very much aligned with modern evangelicalism. And because the modern evangelical church is shot through with Trinitarianism, and because I think that some of us have been allergic to being looked at as a cult, particularly because we have a different view of baptism than most churches, we have tried to compensate in many ways when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. So I'm going to see people adopting more of this idea that the Trinity is central to the Christian faith than certainly than when I grew up understanding. And so to answer your question, yes, I think it would be difficult, not impossible, but it also depends on what a person is doing. So in my church, I teach all the time, I, you know, teaching Bible studies, I'm in people's houses and so forth, but I couldn't teach within the four walls of our church because for the elders of our congregation, my non-belief in the Trinity is a bridge too far. So I think more so people kind of have to carve out spaces for themselves. And yes, it, you will be fighting an uphill battle. And would you say that this is important to you to bring change to that mindset within within the the community of groups absolutely how are you going to achieve that <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that's any ideas <laughs> oh, man. that's those are those are good and fundamental questions since i was removed from my preaching position these are questions that i have had to ask myself a lot and w- w- wait when did you get removed from preaching i i didn't know about that yeah so gosh this would have been last year so right before the church closures uh during the pandemic so i was Mm. preaching at my church like i said we didn't have a one preacher it was myself and another brother who had preached back and forth i started to talk about the fact that i no longer believed in the trinity and i was contacted by one of my former bible college professors he was my apologetics professor who i knew very well and had a good rapport with he told me that he was concerned about my beliefs and wanted to talk about it a little bit more. And he asked me a question. He asked me, do you believe that Jesus was created? And I responded with, yes, a simple yes. That's where I'd come down at that point. And his response to me was, you and I can have a conversation about this until you come to basically the correct view, or I'm going to go to the elders of your church. And I had absolutely nothing to hide. I didn't think it was a big deal. I certainly wasn't going to agree to a close-ended Bible discussion with him. So I said, you know, we really don't have anything more to say about this. And to his word, he went to the elders of my church. The elders brought me in for a meeting um, after, I don't know, over an hour of talking. They informed me that I would no longer be able to preach and teach wow. the church anymore. So how did you receive that? Were you, you, you must have been so heartbroken. This is such a part of your life, your people, your calling— yeah. And to have that just suddenly taken away. It was, for me, absolutely devastating. I had, I had given everything 
my heart and soul to the brethren because I love them because I, I you know I continue to love them I I was so hurt and devastated by it all. I just, it, it was too raw for me to continue to be involved at that time. And so I left for a little bit over a year and um, uh, eventually came back after searching my heart and lots and lots of prayer and study, you know, have been able to get back into doing some of the things that I love with the congregation. But to answer your question, yes, it was hard. It was very difficult for me to not be given the benefit of the doubt when I had been serving without a title, without pay, things I had never asked for, giving my whole heart and soul to the congregation, to basically be told, yeah, you're a wolf and we need to protect the congregation from you is very difficult. But I think that many Christians, many Unitarian Christians have similar stories. And um, I'm thankful, so thankful for the restitution that the Lord has brought and how he has taught me that I don't have to be in a pulpit to serve him. You know, I can I can yeah. serve him whether I'm leading worship. I can serve him in my house leading Bible study. I can serve him any number of ways. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, did they say to you that uh, you can't preach anymore, but we still want you to attend? <laughs> that was almost exactly the words. <laughs> okay, and and your yeah. response was no thanks, and you took some time off. That was yes. That's exactly right. Okay. All right. And then you then after a while you thought about it, you prayed about it, you're like, all right, well, I guess I'm just gonna come back and, you know, do what I can within the congregation. Right, right. Because these understand that these people were they're my family. Like I, I had been in their houses, they had been in mine. I had yeah. baptized one of the gentlemen. I mean I, I missed them so much the entire time yeah. that I was gone. They didn't make this decision. It was the leadership that did. In your area, do you not have very many of the this this kind of um, church? Absolutely, I could I could have gone to any number of the churches, but um, you know, I had only ever been a member of two churches: the church that I grew up in and this church. So for me, starting over again at a different church, I, I thought, well, this is just going to start all over again. <laughs> you know, I, I can go to a different church, but how am I sure that the reaction? that the other church is going to be any different than the reaction that I've received in my own church. So I might as well, I, you know, I might as well just, I, yeah, I started I sampling some non-Trinitarian traditions, but, you know, I was kind of in the wilderness for a little while. Do you have any ideas on how you can change leadership to not be so dogmatic on this point, considering the fact that the founders were not so dogmatic on this point? Uh, have you been able to, like, gain any traction by pointing that out? Or uh, what do you think is a way to to loosen things up here? Well, I, I must say that I have been very pleased with the majority of the reactions that I have received since coming out as a non-Trinitarian. And I have had many people, some people who have surprised me, who have sent me private messages saying, yes, I think very similar. And so I, I don't know how to change the minds of the leadership but I do know that the minds of the individual congregants can be changed. And I think that that's where it's going to start. If you can get a critical mass of people in the churches who recognize that their brother, that there are brothers and sisters who do not believe in the Trinity and they are indeed brothers and sisters, that over the long term is going to change the trajectory of our churches. And that's basically mm-hmm. been my goal and what I've been trying to do with uh, some of the YouTube responses and things that I've done, explaining my views, trying to help people see, well, this is where I'm coming from, from the Bible, not to proselytize 
um, which people would be very resistant to, but to explain. You know, here's a genuine Christian who takes the Bible seriously, who doesn't believe in the Trinity. Here's why. So, yeah. all right. So let's get back to talking about uh, historically on the theology of the Trinity and the movement and factors about that. What, what would you say on that? Yeah, so probably it's important to note that with what was happening in the, in the landscape at that time. So again, I mentioned the views of Alexander and um, Thomas Campbell who basically held with the traditional Presbyterian view. You had folks like David Puravance and Barton Stone, uh, who held to the non-Trinitarian view. But there was criticism that was coming from both sides. Campbell and Stone were getting criticism. Campbell, because his views on the Trinity were very vague and he refused to use the Trinitarian language. And then Stone for the same reason, uh, but also for his denial of the doctrine of the Trinity. Campbell scolded Stone some because he continued to write and teach on it more so than Campbell did. But what people have to understand is that Barton Stone couldn't help but talk about it because he was being maligned. If you, you can even just go on uh, online and, and they've actually digitized so many of these old uh, journals and, and books that were written around this time. This is in the uh, mid 1800s, mid to late 1800s in which he's being called an Arian, which he's being called a Socinian, he's being called a Unitarian. And where he lays out his views is in a, a, a book-length response to a guy by the name of Thomas Horace Cleland, who was a Presbyterian minister. And that's where we get a lot of the bulk of Stone's theology, where he uh, talks about what his views on the Trinity are, what his views on um, the pre-existence of Christ, and if I can, I have a quote from Stone that I want to share. Let me see if I can. Yeah, that'd be great. This is basically summarizes his views of who God is and who Jesus is. The first one is a quote about God. He says that there is but one living and true God is a plain doctrine of revelation. And he goes on to say, my own views of the son of God are that he did not begin to exist 1,820 years ago nor did he exist from eternity, but was the first begotten of the Father before time or creation, that he was sent by the Father 1,820 years ago into the world and united with a body prepared for him, and that in him dwelt all the fullness of Godhead bodily. So for those who are aware of the different range of views on the Trinity and the relationship between the Father and the Son, but recognize what he's responding to. When he says that he does not believe that Jesus began to exist 1,820 years ago, he's responding to the Socinians. So he's, he's responding to those people who do not believe in the preexistence of Christ, but believe that Jesus came into existence at his conception. But then on the other hand, he says he doesn't exist from eternity. So he's responding to the Trinitarians, those people who believe that he was God, true God from, you know, from eternity past. But he believes that he was first begotten of the Father before time or creation, which is essentially an Arian view. While he denied being called an Arian for many different reasons, this is essentially Arianism. Jesus is not eternal, but he also did not begin to exist at his conception. God brought him into existence uh, before the creation of the world. So that kind of summarizes where Barton Stone and Elias Smith, Abner Jones, uh, David Puravance, and many others uh, landed with regards to uh, mm -hmm. who Jesus was. Were there also Socinians within uh, the Restoration Movement as well, or no? 
no, this was most. This was basically a line for both um, uh, Stone and Campbell uh, because mm. of their way of interpreting the scriptures. And there's so many passages that they understood clearly taught the pre-existence of Christ. This was kind of the minimum that a person I see. had to believe. Yeah. So you had Arians, you had Trinitarians, maybe some other some other options in between there, like Benetarians or eternal subordinationists, but uh, definitely had to believe in pre-existence. Now, how did this freedom uh, with respect yeah. to Christology, how, how did that uh, fizzle out? You know, because like you said today in your own experience, you're like, well, man, <laughs> I got told I'm not allowed to preach anymore. What happened? So there were a couple of factors. The first is we need to understand that even though Stone's name comes first in the Stone-Campbell movement, he was not the most influential of the two. Alexander Campbell was. He was the more prolific writer. If your listeners are familiar with William Lane Craig, Alexander Campbell was the William Lane Craig of his time. He was out there. He was debating. He was writing. He was a brilliant analytical mind. And he was the theological force behind the movement. And he believed in the Trinity. So even though he didn't use that kind of language, that theology was clearly the dominant force. And then as the movement rolled forward, the non-Trinitarian elements slowly began to be consumed by the Trinitarian elements, particularly the closer you get to evangelicalism. So I mentioned that before, that desire to be at the evangelical table at the very least, a person has to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And then uh, the reality is that there are just many people who think that it's biblical, uh, even though they aren't familiar with the language and the historical creeds and so forth. There were people who were convinced, like Campbell was, that there was one Jehovah and you know three personalities within that one Jehovah. But I think those three elements, they're being convinced that it was biblical, growing closer to evangelicalism, and then the theological influence over time of Alexander Campbell in particular led to the dying out of the non-Trinitarian elements within the Restoration Movement. And would you say that, that there remained non-Trinitarians within the movement all throughout the 20th century, or that it did basically completely die out? No, there have always been non-Trinitarians, and I think that there always will be. Uh, the question is whether or not you'll be able to hear or see them, whether or not they'll speak out. So there were not right. people who were making this a point of contention. I mean, if you anybody who knows anything about the Christian churches and the Churches of Christ know that it's a very much a debating movement. People were doing formal debates on all kinds of theological issues. But this was one that was just more or less settled. So if a person didn't believe in the Trinity, it was more or less their kind of private belief, but it wasn't something that was bandied about. Mm -hmm. I see. All right, what else should we talk about? Well, it's also, I think, important to understand the difference between how Barton Stone went about uh, his non-Trinitarianism within the Restoration Movement and how Elias Smith and Abner Jones went about theirs. Um, and I think... Even though it ended the same, it might be a cautionary tale or some kind of instruction for how those of us within the Restoration Movement might think about defending and explaining our own Trinitarian views. As I've mentioned, Barton Stone, he talked about it because he had to talk about it, because he needed to clarify his views, but there were other things that were more important to him. For the Christian Connection folks, Elias Smith, Abner Jones, and others, 
they in their journals uh, and in their own ministries would do debates on the Trinity. It was very much a focal point of their ministries. And what happened was it drove a wedge between them and the Campbell side of the Stone Campbell movement and the other Trinitarians around them and kind of hedged them off so that people were on defensive mode and couldn't hear what they were saying. Ultimately, the Christian Connection group joined up with the Boston Unitarians. And then over time, that group, because of doctrines like universalism and a denial of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ and other doctrines, grew more and more progressive over time. And through various mergers came to result in the denomination that we know today as the United Church of Christ. And so while within the restoration movement, we don't see any strong group of non-Trinitarians. There are non-Trinitarian individuals and there is space for non-Trinitarian people, depending on what they're doing, as opposed to what happened with Elias Smith and Abner Jones, who unfortunately their labors really kind of terminated in a church that some would question with how Christian it is, you know, entirely. So I, I, I say this because I do see some people on the landscape who have written books and have done debates on the Trinity and are really eager to try to get those within the restoration movement to accept non-Trinitarianism. But the way in which you're going to do that is not by appearing to be proselytizing because we have a historical reaction against that. If you can do the work of an evangelist apart from anything that has to do with the the Trinity, show that you care about the church, show that you care about the cause of the gospel, and just happen to be a non-Trinitarian. And here, let me explain to you why that is. I think that you're going to make much more traction than trying to attack it head on. Interesting. Because of the the fear that if you disbelieve in the Trinity, you could go liberal and end up like the United Churches of Christ. Yeah, well, definitely, I think the fear that people have that we're a unity movement at its heart. I see. So whenever somebody comes in and wants to start pushing something that goes against the grain, we're suspicious of it. It doesn't mean that you can't believe it, but when you start pushing it, that's when people start to become defensive and they want to circle the wagons, okay? That's what happened with Elias Smith and Abner Jones. Because they pushed it so hard, the Trinitarian churches, both in and outside the Restoration Movement, began to circle the wagons in a way they might not have had otherwise, and they didn't with Stone, because he, he didn't make it the centerpiece of his ministry and try to convert people into non-Trinitarians. Interesting. So... What about the idea of pushing not for the issue of mm-hmm. non-Trinitarianism, but for the issue of freedom to not believe in the Trinity or to believe in the Trinity? Yeah. Would, would that be more accepted? I think that's where it has to be, honestly. Yeah. I think that's where people should start. It's like calling the group back to its roots. Exactly. Right? Yeah. No, and, and, and I think that's really important because nobody within the Christian churches in particular, wants to cut off one half of the Stone Campbell movement. (laughs) You know, nobody wants to just completely dismiss uh, who Barton Stone was and what he did. He was an amazing man. He stood against the mistreatment of the Native Americans. 
he stood against slavery. He emancipated his slaves, wherein, you know, there was a time where that was uh, completely unnecessary for him to do. He was just a gentle soul who loved the scriptures and who loved Jesus Christ. And uh, he really holds a special place in the heart of our movement. And I think calling people back to those roots, saying we're not trying to make everybody believe what we want to believe, but we want to create space where people can follow the Bible according to the dictates uh, you know, of their own conscience, but holding firm to the fast that our confession, you know, that all of us within the movement make it our baptism, that I believe that Jesus is a Christ, the son of the living God and my Lord and Savior. You know, within that framework, there is room for lots of diversity. Very good. Well, Eric, thanks so much. This has been an enlightening conversation. I feel like I learned so much, and uh, you know, I'm just genuinely curious about this restoration movement, uh, being that the name of this podcast is the word restoration in Latin. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I really feel a an, an incredible brotherhood with Barton and Stone, even though I've obviously never met them, and uh, really their heart resonates with me today. I wish you the best. I think you are a superstar, Eric, and you really are a gifted communicator. And I, I know we don't agree on every single thing here, but I can at least say that, you know, I can see God at work in your life. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the conversation. I thank you for your ministry and your continued uh, influence within the uh, Unitarian movement. And uh, I just pray that we all continue to grow up until we reach the fullness of maturity in Christ. Well, this concludes this episode, uh, number 440, Non-Trinitarian History in the Stone-Campbell Movement with Eric Miller. If you'd like to ask any questions or leave feedback, please come on to the website and make your thoughts known. In many ways, Miller's story is really heartbreaking to hear of the suffering that he's gone through, being uh, told to step down, because he happens to agree with one of the founders of the whole movement, Christologically. Uh, But this sort of thing happens all around the world, sadly, among others in this same movement. And uh, if you'd like to hear a little bit more about that on the Australian front, uh, may I encourage you to pick up the book by Jeff Dibel, Christ Before Creeds, if you haven't yet. Uh, It's a, a book that lays out one Churches of Christ pastor's perspective on who Jesus is and a little bit about his own story of the harsh response that his own church gave him as a result of standing up for this truth, but not in a bold, confrontational way, but just uh, holding to it as a matter of conscience and not preaching on the Trinity. And just even that uh, landed him in hot water. And I'll leave it to you to read the rest of the story if you'd like to pick that up. But that's Christ Before Creeds by Jeff Dibel. Take a look at it. And I've got a couple of interviews with him that you can listen to as well that I can link in the show notes to this episode if you're curious about another uh, true Stone Campbell movement gentleman. Well, that's it for today, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.